welcome to Ask the Expert uh, from the Sugar Science. It's a new style of scientific communication. It's kind of more like a town hall than a lecture. It's short to accommodate the time-sensitive world of scientists. And we believe that collaboration accelerates scientific research and especially across disciplines. Um, and uh, today for our guest, I am very excited to have Zachary Freiberg, MD, PhD. He's currently at the University of Pittsburgh. He's a physician scientist with a basic science training in cell biology, imaging, genetics, neuroendocrinology, as well as clinical training in psychiatry. So he has really a great reach across all these disciplines. And as an independent investigator, Dr. Freiberg has combined his basic science and clinical expertise to develop his current research focus on peripheral dopaminergic mechanisms of metabolic regulation and their roles in diabetes and antipsychotic drug-induced metabolic disturbances. He received a BS at Yale University at, in the MBNB department. And then he received his MD and PhDs at Albert Einstein in following. So he, during the PhD, he investigated the roles of lipid signaling and controlling hormone secretion in the laboratory of Dr. Dennis Shields. And after con uh, completing his clinical training in psychiatry at Cornell, he trained as a postdoctoral fellow at Columbia in the labs of Jonathan Javich and Dave Seltzer, focusing on mechanisms of, of dopamine neurotransmission. So this kind of led him to his current studies, examining the roles of dopamine signaling outside the brain in organs like the pancreas and how medications like antipsychotic drugs sit, alter the signaling to cause insulin resistance and diabetes. So welcome, Zach. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I can't wait to talk about your new paper, which is new roles for dopamine as a pancreatic uh, modulator of insulin and glucagon secretion. And thanks so much for joining us. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for inviting me. I'm, I'm humbled and grateful to, uh, to have this opportunity uh, for us to, to chat and, and to, to speak with, um, you know, uh, the, the, the larger community. Uh, this, is, this is obviously very exciting. Uh, and I hope that, um, you know, we can discuss some interesting ideas and maybe find find a new, a new horizon as it, as it were. Um, I love that idea. Cool. So I have a few slides. Yeah. I, let's dive yeah. into those. Yeah. Let's, let's take a look at what you got. So very briefly, right. The, the slides that, that we have uh, here relate to uh, today's uh, topic, which is new roles for dopamine as a pancreatic modulator of insulin and glucagon hormone secretion. And, you know, while dopamine has been studied for at least 60 years, primarily in the brain as a neurotransmitter, um, it turns out that we actually have decades um, of data suggesting that, that it does lots of stuff outside of the brain. And in fact, some of the, the first studies to, to give evidence of dopamine's role in metabolism come from Parkinson's disease. It turns out that when patients with Parkinson's disease were being tested with L-DOPA, which is one of the mainstays of, of treating the motor symptoms of Parkinson's. They actually started developing metabolic symptoms. They started developing hyperglycemia, elevated blood sugar, which was totally unexpected. And, and that led to why? So it turns out that dopamine, which is the product of L-DOPA, inhibits insulin release in pancreatic beta cells in islets. And even more interestingly, these same beta cells actually express the same dopamine receptors expressed in neurons. And in particular, dopamine D2 
uh, receptors. So dopamine D2 receptors are inhibitory in the brain. They inhibit the release of neurotransmitters, including dopamine. So what, what my colleagues and I found was that this same receptor is an inhibitory receptor for insulin secretion, and in particular, glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. But, you know, in vivo, on a systemic level, it still hasn't been clear or entirely obvious whether metabolic effects that are mediated by dopamine are primarily a result of dopamine's actions in the brain that cascade down to other organs, whether dopamine acts on these same dopamine receptors primarily in the periphery outside of the brain in order to cause metabolic symptoms, or probably, you know, most likely because, you know, life is messy and we deal in shades of gray, it's probably some combination of all of the above where one system is affected and it feeds back on the other and vice versa, because nothing functions in a vacuum after all. Right. And as we know, the brain and the uh, pancreas are connected by the vagal nerve. That's exactly right. And, and in fact, more and more evidence suggests that, that that actually might be how Parkinson's disease actually begins, that, that abnormal protein aggregation happens outside of the brain and tracks up that same vagal nerve to get into the brain. So there's, there's a lot of back and forth. So again, what what my colleagues and I then did was, well, if some of these components of the dopamine machinery, which have been well characterized in the brain, um, are important functionally, you know, more on a more basic level, we stepped back and looked first in beta cells, but then also in other important pancreatic islet cell types like alpha cells, the cells that produce glucagon, the hormone that raises blood sugar, to see whether they express dopamine receptors, as well as other components of the dopamine biosynthetic machinery. And it turns out that both alpha cells as well as beta cells express some combination of all five dopamine receptors. And they also express the, the biosynthetic enzymes, um, including tyrosine hydroxylase, the enzyme that converts tyrosine to L-DOPA, and dopamine decarboxylase, which, which takes the L-DOPA and turns it into dopamine, as well as um, the transporters, proteins, which actually shuttle in L-DOPA that circulates in the bloodstream into pancreatic islet cells to convert them into dopamine. And those are called LATs, large, amino, large neutral amino acid transporters. And so as you can see here, they're in deep red, suggesting that both alpha cells and beta cells express bucket loads. What's particularly important about this is that when one eats, levels of circulating L-DOPA rise 50-fold so that you can then couple peripheral dopamine synthesis to meals and meal size. So the next question that we sort of investigated first in beta cells and later in alpha cells was, well, if they express the machinery of dopamine synthesis, do they actually make much? So just taking beta cells from islets or you know, beta cell lines, took a look to see how much they secreted or how much was inside for that matter. And in the absence of any kind of 
dopamine precursors like L-DOPA, we saw virtually nothing. But when we added L-DOPA, suddenly they started making significant quantities of dopamine and they could break it down as well, just like neurons, so that it doesn't stick around uh, too, too long. And we saw, interestingly enough, something similar but different in pancreatic alpha cells. So it turns out that in the, unlike beta cells, in the absence of L-DOPA, alpha cells could make their own L-DOPA mm. independently of any substrate uptake, as well as their own dopamine, and interestingly enough, their own norepinephrine. But when you supplement with L-DOPA, it goes up substantially. It goes up almost a thousandfold. Yeah. Suggesting that alpha cells have the capacity not only to independently make their own L-DOPA and dopamine, but that they can readily take up the precursors. And interestingly enough, even though they express the machinery to convert dopamine to norepinephrine, because these are virtually identical molecules, they preferentially secrete dopamine and not norepinephrine, suggesting that it's, it's dopamine that's the coin of the realm, that that's primarily what's being used. I love to, that to signal. phrase, that's fantastic. Once they make it, what happens next? Well, it turns out that that L-DOPA is actually preferentially taken up when beta cells are stimulated. So there's a doubling in L-DOPA uptake during high glucose stimulation, suggesting that again, this is yet another way of coupling local pancreatic dopamine synthesis to meals when blood sugar rises. Because after all, if this dopamine signaling is inhibitory, then you would want to be able to finely tune the level of inhibition to the degree of stimulation. And this is exactly what we see. So Jack, at this point, are you hypothesizing that this is like a tuning situation going on here, a fine tuning of the actual, you know, mechanism? Of that's exactly appreciate? right. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a modulator. Mm. It's, it's, and, and it's meant to tune in response to levels of food. So for example, right, you don't want to have a one size fits all model of controlling the duration of insulin secretion. So if you have a candy bar versus you know, a, a 10 course meal, you don't want the same level of inhibition. So the more you eat, presumably the greater the level of circulating L-DOPA, which gets taken up to form more dopamine and therefore more inhibition. Yeah. And so what we find is in both human islets as well as in mouse islets, you see, uh, a concentration-dependent inhibition of glucose-stimulated insulin secretion, according to the levels of L-DOPA. Interestingly enough, human islets are, you know, respond in a, in, in, in a much more sensitive way to the dopamine compared to mouse islets. And that is in, I mean, that's a whole other story, which we recently published, but that has to do with the relative amounts of dopamine receptors to adrenergic receptors, because it turns out the dopamine can signal through both. Hmm. And you see this here, actually, when, when we look at glucagon as opposed to insulin. So what we find is that unlike beta cells, picomolar concentrations, vanishingly small amounts of dopamine are capable of diminishing 
glucagon secretion. However, after a certain point, when you start passing the micromolar levels, it actually becomes a biphasic response and starts becoming stimulatory. And that has to do with dopamine's ability to actually at much higher concentrations to start signaling through receptors other than dopamine receptors, namely adrenergic receptors, because it turns out that alpha cells predominantly express beta adrenergic receptors, which are stimulatory. On the other hand, express alpha adrenergic receptors, which like dopamine D2 receptors are inhibitory. And the relative amounts of these adrenergic receptors to the dopamine receptors, um, coupled with the relative amounts of circulating substrate, the dopamine that's around, determine the type of response that you get. It's very, uh, it's so much more complex than you might even imagine at first glance from the textbook, you know, description. <laughs> so, yes. I mean, it's, it's, uh, still, it's still shocking to me that only now are we beginning to move away from beta cells right. and, and look at the sociology of the islet to, to look at some of these other cell types. And the parallels with what you see in the brain with all of the different types of neuronal populations and the diversity of you know, products that neurons release locally to signal with one another in many ways is really quite similar to the, to the island. Yeah. So being very able to- it's, it's very orchestral in nature, right? <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. um, can I ask a quick question? Oh yes, uh, of course. Hey, Nair. <laughs> Hi, uh, Hi, that's really nice talk. I never heard about this uh, dopaminergic, let's say signaling in beta cells or alpha cells. I know a little bit about um, the, vag the vago innervation and also the uh, beta 2 adrenergic receptors, but I'm like so fascinated by that. So, okay, my question is, uh, is this signaling, do you know if it's mainly by paracrine signaling, let's say from like alpha cells, since you said that it, they can also produce uh, dopamine or it's mainly by uh, the dopamine, dopaminergic neurons? Or like, what are your thoughts? Like, where is this coming from? So it's coming lo primarily locally, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it's coming from, so alpha cells can make L-dopa and dopamine. Beta cells can't generally make much L-dopa, but they make their own dopamine too. And so what's happening is, is that you're getting a combination of autocrine and paracrine signaling, which is happening. And that, and, and you, you, you know, at baseline. And then once mm -hmm. the circulation starts bringing in uh, L-dopa as a substrate, both of these cell types can readily take it up and convert it into dopamine. Oh, okay, I see. So they're signaling, they're, they're communicating to one another. Probably where the paracrine signaling happens most is uh, under basal conditions in the absence of high glucose stimulation, because at that point, it's the alpha cell, which is freely making L-dopa that can then mm -hmm. get taken up by the beta cell to be converted into dopamine. Yeah, it makes sense. Thank you. Sure. That basically leads to, you know, a model, a picture as it were. So it could very well be if we know in both alpha cells and beta cells, the dopamine's capability to signal through endogenously expressed dopamine receptors is inhibitory and inhibits 
insulin and glucagon, then somehow diabetes, whether it's type one or type two, entails dysfunction of these receptors, which leads to both hyperglucagonemia and an elevation in glucagon, as well as an elevation in insulin. And that elevated glucagon leads to hyperglycemia, which potentiates insulin resistance, which then leads to further insulin secretion on top of already the hyperinsulinemia that's happening from you know, disrupted dopamine signaling to begin with, to create a closed loop where yeah. you, you end up potentiating continued dysfunction. And that's very toxic to the beta cells, hyperglycemia. Yes. And let's just say, just comment for one, I don't know if you're going to get to this after, but you know, when some of these um, patients go on psychiatric drugs, psychotropic drugs, they encounter metabolic dysfunction, right? So how do you imagine that that, you know, is, is, is impacting the system? So we actually just published a paper on this because antipsychotic drugs really can't tell the difference between, you know, dopamine receptors in the brain versus the periphery. What we find in ILIS is that these same antipsychotic drugs, for example, bind directly to the dopamine receptors. To so receptors. All, five, all five flavors? Well, no, they're, they're primarily D2 and D3. Okay. There's one that called clozapine, which is actually the worst offender, which also binds D4. Although alpha cells and beta cells really don't express much D4. Mm -hmm. But the single unifying feature of all antipsychotic drugs is their ability to block D2 and D3. And if you take that away and keep their affinities to other targets the same, they lose all their psychiatric properties. You know, Fundamentally, what, what we find is that drugs that interfere with this local dopamine signaling lead to dysregulated insulin and glucagon secretion. And in fact, what we found was that the, that the levels of increased uh, glucagon secretion from, from human islets was in direct proportion to their metabolic liabilities. That's actually how I got into this work. It, it was as a psychiatrist, because almost all, if not all of these drugs rendered people taking them um, with dysglycemias, with, with impaired um, glycemic control and or insulin resistance. I've seen some patients gain 30 pounds within the first month of beginning these medications. And, and it's a very hard road to trod. I mean, like you want to help people who, you know, who are struggling. And at the same time, how do you help people, you know, balance the metabolic liabilities of the drugs with whatever benefits that they, that yeah. they can get? Because now yeah. maybe they have, you know, more of a, a you know, sort of, uh, a better metabolic, a better, you know, mental state, but now they're, you know, really at risk for a whole host of another set of cohort of diseases. Exactly. And, and, and in fact, you know, for, for most people taking these medications, that's, that's the number one reason for why people stop taking them, which, which then leads to psychiatric decompensation. So, 
you know, circle. Also, yeah. isn't it true that the D2 or D2 like receptors in the rat, they decrease uh, intracellular calcium levels. And, and that of course, right. Has to, uh, a lot to do with exocytosis. That's exactly yeah. right. As well as cyclic AMP. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, so, so the, the pathway that that's best understood for dopamine receptors, D1 like receptors, which are stimulatory and D2 like receptors, which are inhibitory. The reason why they're called stimulatory and inhibitory is because of their effects on cyclic AMP synthesis mm -hmm. and cyclic AMP is like calcium, one of the main regulators of exocytic vesicular release. Yeah, in, very interesting today, um, a paper came out, uh, Kevin Harold, you know, had this, um, this paper and others that, you know, is talking about uh, TET2 controlling the responses of B cell, beta cells to inflammation in the autoimmune diabetes. And uh, it turns out that, you know, TET2, I think, is also kind of impacted by, uh, like there's, a, there's an abnormal conversion of alpha ketoglutarate, right, in the TCA cycle, mm -hmm. and that decreases the, um, these alpha, I mean, these uh, alpha ketoglutarate-dependent enzymes like uh, those that are controlled by the TET family of genes. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a, you know, there's, there's, there's something really... There's so many pieces to this puzzle, right? There's the, the TCA cycle, there's the receptors at the surface, there's the exocytosis of the insulin and its feedback loop. And, and but I mean, I guess I brought up that paper because again, they're sort of po pointing the smoking gun at the fact that it's actually the beta cell that's dysfunctional that sets the whole autoimmune um, scenario in motion. So. I'm not, I'm not convinced of that. Yeah. And why, yeah. what would you say? Cause I mean, I this has been the big debate, right? Is it, you know, right. murder or suicide? Right. I, either way, right. The system becomes dysfunctional and, and in a sense, you know, it's almost an academic argument, you know, because, you know, one of the things that I think is, is interesting is that whether again, whether it's type one diabetes or type two diabetes or even antipsychotic induced, you know, metabolic disturbances, they have something which is unique in the sense that they have both hyperglucagonemia and hyperinsulinemia. If the system were working, you should never, ever have that. Right. Right. And yet both are elevated. Hyperinsulinemia by definition should prevent hyperglucagonemia from happening. There's, 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 there's evidence that blocking glucagon signaling in, you know, blocks the development of, of these dysglycemias and impaired glucose tolerance in spite of continued problems with insulin. Yeah. And I think that this, this, this goes to you know, a provocative hypothesis that, that people like Roger Unger you know, talked about for decades, which, which is in fact that it's, it's alpha cell dysfunction, which, which drives the process and that, you know, the islet being plastic, right? It's the beta cells that are responding to persistent alpha cell dysfunction that, that are reacting rather than driving the, the phenomenon. Yeah. There's a whole set of, um, scientists that are actually really kind of cluing in or honing in on that, um, 
idea that alpha cells have a real role in this. Uh, it comes to mind, you know, a whole group out of uh, Indiana University. But I, you know, there's also, we haven't really talked that much about this other piece. And that is, you know, Philippe Blanco's group did this, um, they did an ablation of the pancreatic nerves and they saw that they could reverse, uh, you know, type one in mice, not mice. And then uh, Matthias von Harris group, you know, his paper that was in science, uh, interference of pancreatic sympathetic signaling halts the onset of diabetes in mice. So, you know, it's like, how might, I'm just to hypothesize and throw this out here. How might sympathetic uh, innervation impact alpha cell dysfunction? Could it, or, 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 or could it? It absolutely could. So one of the things that we, we found that again, talking about mice for a minute, because, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, it's a little different, it's, right? It, it's, it's a lot different actually in terms of sympathetic and from the, from the sympathetic standpoint, largely, I think, or at least partially because of the receptors and the receptor availability. And this becomes really important for sympathetic innervation because what comes out of sympathetic nerves, norepinephrine. Yeah. Right. And what you, what you end up having, and, and this is what we found actually in, in, in our recent paper was that if the predominant in mice, the predominant GPCR or, catecho or catecholamine receptors are beta one and beta two adrenergic receptors. These are stimulatory. So when you have sympathetic innervation and, and that norepinephrine is binding beta one and beta two adrenergic receptors, you're going to be driving um, glucagon release. So you're generating hyperglucagonemia. Yeah. So the more you drive sympathetic, you know, the sympathetic system, the more glucagon you're going to be secreting and, and the high and the greater the degree of hyperglycemia, which, which would then fix. Oh, yeah, the whole system gets worn down. What, what um, has anyone done a full characterization of the, um, you know, the receptors in the alpha cell and, and their response? I mean, has anybody done a patch clamp of, you know, the alpha cells? I'm just kind of, I'm going to start looking for that. Yeah. So, so again, you know, it's a drop in the bucket. Like if you, you know, if you like just go on PubMed and mm -hmm. you, you graph the amount of alpha cell centric papers versus beta cell centric papers, it's like one to 40. Yeah. You know, people are just beginning to sort of awaken you know, to the, the possibility that alpha cells are doing stuff and stuff that's relevant. Um, and the Delta cells are hanging out there too. I mean, I think, you know, they're, the, I, I think they've been historically hard to replicate also. I mean, when we're talking about islet transplantation, they've mm -hmm. got beta cell, you know, lockdown. The alpha cell, I think is fairly, you know, maybe they're, they're getting close to that. I think Delta cell has been really hard to figure out and um, make from stem cells. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because they're, they're really, you know, um, if alpha cells are understudied, then the, the, del the Delta cells, like the George Harrison of, of the island, you know, <laughs> unfortunately I love George, you, I know you, know, you, know, I, you, you know, I, and it makes me sad, you know, but, but, but the, but I, I mean, let's talk in, in hopefully two years about the Delta cells, you know, but I, I agree with you. I mean, it's a really a wide open frontier for young um, postdocs and, you know, graduate students, people to start thinking about the fact that it's not all wrapped up. This is really, 
you know, it's, it, it, this is a massive um, project that still has uh, a lot of information to be gleaned. And it's the metabolic, I mean, it's the nest system of the, of the body's ability to eat, right? So, and I think there's so much work to be done here. Um, it, it does dis sort of disappoint me when I hear like, oh, type one diabetes is all wrapped up, you know, you know, we've got the eyelid implant coming, you already have all this control of the, um, the blood sugar via, um, you know, pumps and CGMs, et cetera. That uh, I would argue that, that control is limited and, and we'll see how long it takes for the eyelid implantation. But I do think that, um, that these, these sort of silent partners, I guess, in, in the sense that they haven't been looked at need really to, to come center stage. And I think your, you know, your work is doing that, Zach. I, I'm really appreciative of it. I mean, and there's just, the, the thing about all of this that, that, that's been eye-opening for me is I, I'm coming at this, you know, I, or I, I've been working on this now for 12 years, um, but I came at this as a neuroscientist and a cell biologist. And so I had to sort of learn all of this in, in a very naive sort of way, which, which I think was good because what, what it forced me to do is to see that none of these systems exist in a vacuum, that they're using the same types of signaling motifs, the same types of, you know, especially the same types of conserved receptors that are just coupled slightly differently or to different outputs. But, you know, evolution is smart in the sense that if, if every organ system, if every cell type had to create these systems, to control cell function from scratch, it would just be too energetically expensive. And so the brain is probably the last one to the party. I think that, you know, every organism from, from bacteria on up have to feed, they have to metabolize nutrients. Yeah. And, and I think that rather than thinking about dopamine and, 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 and these signaling systems as, you know, neuronal, Really, I think the neurons are probably the, the last of the specialized systems th that have basically adopted these pre-existing mechanisms. What about this idea that with, you know, the Coxsackie insult, you know, that, you know, the viral driver that is really just making things go awry. I wonder if you have any thoughts about whether or not alpha or beta are more you know, I mean, there's been a big focus on the beta cell. You know, it's 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 highly um, uh, productive, secretory. Once a virus gets in there, you know, everything goes to heck and yeah. You know, and and the dysfunction begins there. So, but what about alpha cells? Has anyone looked at what happens? I mean, we have the perfect storm here with COVID, but also with Coxsackie. Like, what happens to alpha cells once they're under viral viral assault? I personally don't know if anyone's ever looked. Okay, here's a project. Yes. I think there is I think there is a reveal from uh Desio Isaac that uh, he compares the like why alpha cells are less susceptible to viral infection compared huh. to beta cells. Um I well, think from I don't know 2018 or 2019. Okay. It's like it's that. kind of newish. Uh -huh. Who is it? Uh, Who is that now? That's to uh the D E C I O E I Z I R E K. 
Uh, he is from Brussels, but now he has a lab also in Indiana University. Ah. He studies mainly beta cell stress. He's next on the list yeah. for call. Oh, this is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know the answer. <laughs> I, re- I forgot. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you can't, uh, you know, can't have every single paper in the world at our fingertips or mental fingertips, but it's, um, but it's, yeah, it's a really, really curious question. And I mean, in terms of the, the market for, let's just sort of talk about the finances. The market for type one diabetes is a lot less than the market for type two diabetes, right? So some say, okay, well, there's not a lot of incentive for the big companies to get into sort of like drug development for type one diabetes, et cetera. But um, the, the market for, uh, you know, I don't know what the market for, you know, uh, mental health drugs is, but, you know, maybe that's a, that's a way to entice some of these larger drug companies in to sort of explore this, how to make a better, what, psychotropic so that, you know, it could, and then, and then maybe in doing so explore some of these paradigms with the alpha cell. I, I think that would be wonderful. I mean, I, I think that the, the market for psychotropic drugs is complex, particularly for, you know, in the last few years, just because of the, the lack of success at moving away from the same types of conceptual paradigms that have dominated the field for 60 years. All antipsychotic drugs work through dopamine receptors. Um, people have tried to move away from them precisely because you know, the, the original drugs caused Parkinsonism, uh, the newer drugs caused you know, diabetes, and there's been very little success. And so there's been, uh, you know, many companies have liquidated their, their, their CNS divisions or dramatically scaled back. More recently, um, there was uh, you know, uh, a recent drug where olanzapine, which is one of the worst offenders, but you know, in terms of metabolic side effects, but but also, you know, probably one of the better uh, antipsychotics was was bundled with another medication, which um, which dampened some of the some of the side effects. Um, I think you know, so that 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 was sort of a breath of fresh air. Um, what 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 is also interesting, on the other hand is that there actually is already uh, an FDA approved drug to treat type two diabetes, at least, bromocryptine, which which is actually a D2 agonist. So whereas antipsychotic drugs cause these metabolic symptoms by blocking D2 signaling, you know, there's a drug that's literally doing the opposite. And uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, it improves insulin sensitivity. So there's been no mechanism, but, but it's generic. And so the financial incentive is probably lower. Wow. That, yeah, I'm sure it is lower. It is really, I mean, I think it is a place. Where are all the clinical trials on these patients that take these medications and um, have there been any repositories, blood repositories, pancreatic repositories? anything of that nature established? So I'm not familiar with, with any repositories for, for patients taking antipsychotics for the, for the pancreata, at least. I know that you know, for, there are several NIH-funded brain banks where, where you have you know, from subjects uh, who, who have schizophrenia, who donated 
their, their brains, for example, to, to study the mechanisms of schizophrenia in the brain, but I'm not familiar that other organs were, were preserved. Um, in terms of clinical studies, we're actually trying to get one off the ground where we're um, administering low doses of bromocryptine, this agonist, alongside antipsychotic drugs to see if they can blunt or maybe even reverse these antipsychotic induced uh, metabolic symptoms. At least that's a start. Yeah, maybe a great idea to have these folks, you know, wearing a CGM and seeing what comes out of it. But I, um, I you know, it might be a um, a good a good question for Mark Atkinson to ask whether or not NPod has um, any any um, you know sort of subclasses of their in their collection of mm -hmm. pancreata that you know came from people who took these medications over years. That would be amazing, actually. Another email has to be sh sent this morning. <laughs> <laughs> this is this has really been so interesting, uh, Zach. And uh, thanks, Nara, for uh, for joining and and asking some great questions. I really can't wait to see what you uh, do at uh, Pitt. University of Pittsburgh um, has a lot going on, I know, um, right now, and uh, it's a it's a very exciting, I think, place to be. It, it certainly is, and um, there's just it, there's a never-ending amount of work. Yeah, <laughs> but but just being able to get a foothold and 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 to try and get at this, I mean, there are details of this work that have been around for decades. It's, it's, putting, it's putting it together, I think. I mean, Pietro de Camilli published several papers in, in the uh, late 80s and, and early 90s with like Franco Foley and Michaela Solimena showing that, that beta cells have, have a huge reservoir of, of GABA. Yep. And, you know, and you, you brought up GAD65. I mean, I, you know, Right. I mean, my first work in his lab was looking at stiff person syndrome, mm -hmm. looking, looking at some of the, the other, fr frankly, like neuronal proteins like amphiphysin, which are co-released when, when these cells get destroyed. There it is. GAD65, one of the first autoantibodies that show up in, in type 1 diabetes patients. Um, this is going to be, so, we are really going to be keeping an eye on this work as it continues. And I'm hoping that this um, discussion kind of reaches out into the community. And if anyone has any interest in this type of work, you know, they'll reach out to you and, and um, communicate, or if they have any, you know, interest in collaborative projects that you guys can communicate. And because um, I do think that, that coming in from that, from the angle you're coming in, neuroscience, cell biology, and the clinical appreciation of the you know, um, disorder is, is a really powerful place to sit. And I think that, you know, you could have a lot of great conversations with others in the field. So thank you again, Zach, really appreciate you stopping by and talking. Oh, thank you. You know, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm really just grateful that, that a forum like, like this exists. I think it's a, it's just such a wonderful thing. Thank you so much.